When you think about St. Louis and famous people from St. Louis, who do you think of? Do you think of maybe Stan Musial? How about Charles Henry Turner? How about Jeanette Fourchette? We're going to talk about some of those unknown people we need to know in St. Louis on St. Louis in Tune. Welcome, folks, to St. Louis in Tune. We're glad that you are joining us today for some interesting conversations and fresh perspectives on issues and events with experts, community leaders, and everyday people who are driving change and making an impact that shapes our society and world. I'm Arnold Stricker along with Mark Langston. Mark, how are you today, sir? Doing I'm well, actually, doing good. <laughs> no real complaints. I wish there were more sun. I'm a big vitamin D guy. <laughs> and you can only drink so much milk. That's right. Oh, you know, well, my doctor told me <laughs> not to drink milk at my age. Really? Yeah, he said it's probably not a good idea. Do you drink uh, whole milk or 2% or 1% or uh, no percent? Or? Low fat, no nothing in it kind of milk. I remember when I first went from whole milk to mm. no percent, it was like, man, this is like just water. It is like water. I know. I know. Maybe so, that's why he said don't drink it. So I'm buying now 1% milk, and it's you know, only 20 more calories. So I figured, oh, that's not bad. and It's not that fatty either. But it, it tastes a little bit better. Welcome to St. Louis Intune's Food Show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Know, really. you know, We've we got a lot on the plate today. I'll stick with that food oh, analogy. Okay. And matter of fact, it's interesting that the return to civility involves food too. Mm, my favorite subject. If you visit a great restaurant mm-hmm. or read a thought-provoking book, mm-hmm. share your good experience Many small business owners and authors don't have the money to afford large marketing or advertising campaigns. Word of mouth can go a long way, and the web makes it easy for anyone to spread the word. In the case of today, we're not talking about food or restaurants. We're talking about a thought-provoking book, which has really... I've, I'm born and raised in St. Louis. I've read a lot of books on St. Louis. I'm a history kind of buff, so I know a lot about St. Louis. But I've learned things in this book that I have never, ever known before. And those are the things I like because it excites me. We're talking about the book by Calvin Riley and Nene Harris called Black St. Louis. Love it. Nene and Calvin, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Thank you. My gosh, I started this, and I got to – I was on page two, and I'm reading about Jeanette Forchette, Mm -hmm. an African-American woman – i got to move my little marker out of the way here. Mm-hmm. She received a land grant. She had been freed. She was a, a freed slave in Cahokia, and her husband was a freedman named Gregory, I'm going to cry, Gregoire, uh, a blacksmith. And their land grant, they had a narrow strip of farmland in the common fields where they built a French colonial house, and that lot stood near Pierre Laclede's house, which today is the site of the Gateway arch and i'm like how come i've never known about this stuff why fascinating the information is there we made an assumption that black history has been erased but you have to just dig and the facts are there for instance jeanette forchette she her husband passes away and I found her wedding, her marriage license to her second husband, who was also a freed man, who was a gunsmith. 
a very skilled trade. So here we have free people of African heritage living here with important skills toward this frontier village surviving. It's pretty phenomenal. It is phenomenal. And that was the voice of Nene Harris. She's a historian historian, and also an author. And this book, she collaborated with Calvin Riley, and Calvin's here. He's an educator. And I love educators, Lauren. Because <laughs> I'm an educator myself. <laughs> he does, and, and he used to teach at University City, and we both love University yeah. City because that's where we graduated from. Mm-hmm. But he is also, and he loves memorabilia, and I love memorabilia too. Mm-hmm. You've been collecting for 40 years. I over think 40, I've been, over yeah, 40 years. Yeah, I think I've been collecting, but not the same stuff you have. But you have this collection, and you, you are the executive director and founder of the George B. Vachon Museum of African American History up on mm-hmm. St. Louis Avenue. And that's a whole other story, a whole other show that we need to get into. But you both come from this. That's why this book is so vibrant to me is because you had a lot of photographs and a lot of memorabilia that and stories from your own background that you contributed to this. And then Nini's, she's like this library. Now, this is a good (laughs) thing, what I'm going to say, Nini. She's like this (laughs) library freak, and she digs for this stuff. So how did you two guys meet? Good question. Uh, she would come to my museum. Sometimes she would bring tours in, in the area, and she'd come to my museum, and she talked to me about doing a book. And at first I said no. <laughs> and then, but she kept on after me for a couple of years, and I finally agreed to do a book with her. So did you do the book because... Then she would stop pestering you? <laughs> no, I thought, I, I feel like maybe it was. I'm it was, sorry. It was Don't <laughs> you sound like my husband now? Don't you do that, Calvin? No. Even it, if he said it. No, all. no. It's, it sounded like a, it was a good idea. There you go. Good recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great recovery. Right, yeah. You, you had this unbelievable collection of memorabilia from the black community. That goes way, way back. And how did you come upon that? I clean out houses, basements, attics, and I was a collector of black artifacts for over 40 years. Actually, when I first started uh, collecting, I was buying and selling. Mm-hmm. And I was doing flea markets at the Kill Auditorium. And this guy, Ed Orchard, came to my booth. and he, I had a couple of dolls. And he said, how much are those dolls? And I said, they're $100. I bought them at a garage sale for about 10 bucks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He bought them. And he said, you know what they are? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. He told me they're Vargas wax dog made, made by a guy by the name of Francisco Vargas in Louisiana in the 1890s. And they was made of beeswax. Oh, wow. And at that time, it was worth about $1,000 a piece. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> then he asked me, did I know what black member B was? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. He, he was a Jewish guy. So he invited me to his home. He lived in Little Dew, and I went to his home. Mm-hmm. And I saw a collection that changed my life mm. uh, because he had a house full of black mirror bead that he had been collecting. Wow. And that's when I became a collector at that oh, point. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I never knew. <laughs> so never you, knew. So you guys, you know, it's, it's cool, Nene. <laughs> it's cool. I set it up for him. Yeah, right. You sure did. And you made my husband very happy <laughs> talking about me pestering. We, we have okay. a lifetime listener. <laughs> 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 so, so you guys get together. And you had wanted to do this book, or you had thoughts about this? It's St. Louis. This is a part of St. Louis history. St. Louis is this phenomenal city, and we have this fascinating African-American heritage here 
that we tend to isolate. Yes. And one thing I wanted to do was take black history out of the silo it's been in right. and look at it in the context of St. Louis history and the role it played and how it changes in part with immigration and all the how the community changes and evolves. What you just said is extremely important because we have February coming up quote-unquote Black History mm-hmm. Month, and we have black history all the time here on this show. We, yeah. we, it's not just confined to February. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me also of an art museum down in Bentonville, Arkansas, mm-hmm. Crystal Bridges, which has American art, and they don't have a black art section. It's, it's art. It's mm-hmm. the history of art. And what happens is history, and it needs to be part and told in the context of everything else. That's the goal is that when we separate out people so much and don't have the story in the big picture, we really limit our understanding and distort our understanding of history. And across the country right now, they're trying to decide what to teach in uh, black history. And I have a simple answer for that. Just tell the truth. It's simple. Just tell the truth. It's because, like Nini said, the information is there. We just got to dig for it and bring it out. It's there. I really appreciated how this was laid out, and it's laid out from in time periods where pre-Louisiana Purchase and then Louisiana Purchase, the Civil War. Civil War has its own section. And then after the Civil War, abolition to turn of the century, and then from turn of the century to World War II to the millennium. And each section has unbelievable kinds of photographs and pictures. And I know many from your collection that you have at the Mm -hmm. Vashon Museum. The narrative that goes with this and the stories that I know you had told from your childhood and from people that you have interviewed are just are powerful. They're very powerful. I have another thing here where... It's the enslavement of Native Americans and the slave of African Americans. Wasn't that fascinating? I found a lot of documentation early on about people of Native American ancestry who were enslaved, but in 1769, the governor general of the Louisiana Territory ruled against enslaving Native Americans. Now, Native Americans were also enslaving other Native Americans. He ruled against this because, Hmm. it appears, because he didn't want bad feelings between the settlers who were in the fur trade with Native Americans and the various tribes. You can understand that was a purely political decision. Which begs the question why the why blacks were continued to be enslaved at the same because time. Because there was not a, a fur trade with the Af- right. You have to think hmm. of slavery as a depraved economic system. If you think of it as a depraved economic system, then you better understand what happens, why the system grows, and also why it is disappearing in St. Louis prior to the Civil War right. while it's becoming more powerful economic system in outstate Missouri. In fact, in following the story of 
slavery in St. Louis and Missouri, you see how St. Louis has been at war with the state of Missouri since really the 1840s, long before the Civil War. Yeah, and there's something that I, I think people don't really realize, even many who have grown up here, is that there was a very large, free black population here, even when there was an enslaved population. And there was there were difficulties with that, especially like the city wasn't that large at the time, downtown area where individuals maybe got picked up who were not, who were free and were challenged that, hey, why are you here? And those free blacks, I was black rather than African-American. That's just how I was raised. Me too. And (laughs) that's what our friends say. And that there was this very, how do I want to say this? And entrenched in a community where their businesses were extremely viable and they were a benefit to the community, they were a benefit to the St. Louis area. And St. Louis, Mark, I didn't know that St. Louis was this mecca of this is how you're supposed to do it for the country at the time. It was amazing. Now, the population was booming. We may be. It may take 20 years to realize that things we're doing now are wonderful. It takes That's it true. takes historical perspective. But 1860, by 1860, we have a population of 160,000. There are 60,000 people born in Germany among, in that population. That's not even including second generation. That's German-born. Almost 40,000 born in Ireland. I read the census entries and I found over 2,000 people who I could for sure identify as born in Bohemia. I found a few hundred born in Switzerland. This was a foreign city. And amongst that population were almost 3,000 people of African ancestry, or just over 3,000. Over 1,700 were free. And many successful black businessmen. Right. This is a phenomenal. There's a book published in 1859 called The Colored Aristocracy of St. Louis. Right. Very gossipy book. Very and he defines aristocracy just by money. And in defining it by money, he tells about how everybody made their money. And what one of the things I found very interesting was state law prohibited blacks from even entering a place with liquor served. And in St. Louis, there were two establishments that were, quote, colored coffee houses. They were, that was just a code coffee house, for they were liquor establishments. Mm -hmm. And they were owned and operated by people of African ancestry Mm -hmm. in the city of St. Louis, in opposition to the state law. Yeah. I th- this was a, a pretty phenomenal place, but slavery still existed. And in this city, there were just over 1,500 people who were living in bondage. Mm. Kevin, what's the biggest surprise in doing this book for you? As you and Nini got together and you were going through things, and I know it's a Reedy Press book, folks, readypress.com, you can get that there. And also, I'm sure, on Amazon and also local bookstores. 
what was, I don't want to say aha moment or anything like that. That's cliche. But there are things that kind of, I discovered that. And I'm, I'm looking at this thing, the Battle of St. Louis. I don't ever remember reading about the Battle of St. Louis. I don't either. And I'm born and raised here. Mm-hmm. I don't ever remember. So Now, hang on, Nini. So, yeah, she's coming <laughs> across. in my history, teachers. So, so, Calvin, what's the biggest kind of, wow, for you? Well, I don't know. I think the biggest thing for me was able to put out there the history of some of these unknown people mm-hmm. because I think we have some phenomenal people here in St. Louis, and there's known locally and nobody know who they are and mm-hmm. what they've done mm-hmm. and they've done remarkable things so i think that was the biggest aha moment for me is getting their information out there and because this book will go all over the world and i think that's a great thing to and i had never thought about that to, to get the information out there where to work and see it who is one of those people that we should know more about that we don't uh, dr lincoln do good for example dr L- Lincoln Duke did good. He, this uh, is amazing, Mark. This guy's amazing. <laughs> okay. He Never was from Virginia. He's the first African American to graduate from Cornell University with a master's and a doctorate. And I had him at Harris Stowe as one of my professors. He uh, taught chemistry, and he always told us his life stories. He's and he was real tough, and I never understood why he was so tough. But later on, I found out. He told us he used to go uh, when he was working on his doctor. He'd go to school hungry. He said he a lot of that time he had just bread and water. And so Dr. Duguid, it was a company, when he came to St. Louis, his brother was a judge here, and he came here, and a company wanted to hire him as a chemist. But he had to pass for white. He could not tell anybody he was black, and he could not hire anybody black. And Dr. Duguid said he chose not to do that and opened his own lab at an old animal hospital on on Jefferson. He bought that. He had borrowed some money from his parents to, to help him to buy that building, and he did. And he was over there making his own products for over 40-plus years. Oh and I had the honor of cleaning it out. It took me about a year. But I got the whole museum at my – his whole shop is at my museum. And these were some products that were like, like – if correct me if I'm wrong, maybe first hand sanitizer? Yes, yeah, sanitizer. He, oh. uh, he also had the ha- uh, hand cl- uh, cleanser uh, when you clean, get grease off your hand working on cars. And he said a company uh, kept calling him until they got the formula, and they put out goop. And he said he never got credit for it, mm. but they, they use this formula. And he also has a cure for cancer. And, this uh, is crazy. He said that he had tried it on himself, huh. he had, and he tried it on this dog. He said he had, his dog had gone to the veterinarian, and that veterinarian told him the dog had cancer. He said he treated his dog. When he went back to the veterinarian and took the dog back, mm-hmm. he said the veterinarian told him the dog no longer had cancer. Unbelievable. So you know it works. So I believe it's somewhere in my museum, and I want to get a chemist I can trust to find it because I got his papers. Yeah, and this is why this is so important. And, folks, this is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. We're talking to, to Nene Harris and Calvin Riley about their new book that they are, are have released recently. It's called Black St. Louis. And this is why that story, Calvin, is important because that stuff, if it's not put down and people read it, it's lost. And all of, all of his, all of Dr. Duguid's information, somebody could have come in there and just, oh, let's throw this to the dump. And all of that history, all of that valuable understanding of what he gleaned in, in the realm of chemistry would have been lost. And it was going to go to the dump because... The family had hired some guys to clean out the building. So I just happened to stop by there one day. I saw him there, hmm. and I said, where's uh, Dr. Duguid? And they said, he's in a nursing home. 
And I said, what are y'all doing here? They, they said, we, we just cleaned out his place here. And I said, I'm one of his former students. I want a museum, and I like to get a lot of his stuff. Mm-hmm. And he said, come on in. And I ended up getting it all. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Thank That's goodness. the way to do it. Right place at the right, right. time. Yeah. Nini, you were talking about Irish immigrants, German immigrants, Bohemian immigrants. And how did that change the lives of black St. Louisans? In 1840, there are about 16,000 people in St. Louis, and about 12% are people of African ancestry. Many of them are enslaved. And again, you think about slavery as a depraved economic system, a labor system. Then in Ireland, you have a fungus attacking the potato crop. Okay, this crop is essential to Ireland because England controls Ireland and says you're going to grow potatoes. In Ireland, Irish are not allowed to go to school beyond the equivalent of eighth grade. That's why you used to hear the term hedgerow schools. People would hide behind bushes to study because if they were caught teaching one another and reading together, they could be jailed. Sounds, sounds them, familiar. Doesn't it? Isn't, it? It's a very interesting saga here. There were laws against Irish people in their own country owning or having long-term leases on land in Ireland. So you have a powerless, uneducated, unskilled population. Then you have a potato blight. People are starving in the streets. Anyone who cans while they're, can while they're still healthy enough emigrates. A number emigrate to the United States. Some come to New Orleans and come up the river, get off at the riverbanks here, starving and desperate, and build a shanty town. And they will work for food, basically. They will work very cheap. Anything they can get. They're desperate. They're sick. And so what happens? All of a sudden, you've got a cheap labor force. Why would someone invest in buying a slave when you can hire someone for just that day. I want to, and I want to stop right there because that's a great point that we want folks to contemplate. We're going to go to a, a break, but that is an excellent point. And the fact that depraved economic systems can be in really any culture. That's right. And then when you see the convergence of those two here, it's, it leaves an interesting perspective. So we're going to come back for our next segment. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston on the U.S. Radio Network. Each time that we plan a show for St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, 
faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's STL intune.com. There, you'll find every show from our first to our most current. Use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered. And drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. You can do that at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis Intune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis In Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dredscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're talking to Nene Harris and Calvin Riley about the book entitled Black St. Louis. And it, it is a history of individuals and life. It took place from early in a French village ruled by the Spanish. I love that. French village ruled by the Spanish. Because it was like back and forth. Like, make up your mind which country is going to have yeah. us here. From 1764 and re- really to the present, but to the year 2000. And we've talked a little bit about some folks I never knew. Now, here's another one. Winnie. Now, I knew about Lucy Delaney. Lucy Delaney, matter of fact, I've got her book and have read her book. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, but Winnie, I had no clue. Winnie, I- if you've heard, and we just played a, a commercial, I, I call it commercial, we just played a public service announcement for the Dred Scott stamp. It's amazing that you know, basketball players and all these other people can get a stamp, but Dred Scott can't get a stamp. It, it's, it's crazy. I'm like, what in the world? I know, it's Why crazy. can't that happen? It's What's the matter right. with the post office? Something's wrong got enough problems delivering the mail. You know? <laughs> I know. Oh, oh, sorry about that. Oh, I know you're, 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 you've got jobs, you're posting jobs. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, Dred Scott, he filed some suits along the way that had there had been a, a forerunner. I'm going to call it a forerunner. It was Lucy Delaney, but the real oh. forerunner was Winnie. There were more forerunners. Yeah. The Scipion family. Okay, talk about that. Uh, this is Marie news Sk- to me now. To, okay, when there, there was within the French slave code, 
the ability for people of African heritage or ancestry to achieve freedom. Mm -hmm. When we become part of the United States with the ceremony in March 1804, Mm -hmm. we begin the mixing of different traditions, Mm -hmm. and it's like a stew of traditions, including some things from the French Slave Code, which allowed freedom, and there were things from the Virginia Slave Code. All sorts of traditions come into play. But from the beginning of the American era, it was always understood that a slave could sue for freedom, and accepted tradition was once free, always free. Mm -hmm. So if someone had brought an enslaved person with them to a free territory at any time, or they had been in a free territory, then they could sue on the fact that they had been free when they were in that territory. And so you have these freedom suits beginning just two years after the Louisiana, the transfer of the Louisiana Territory to the U.S., Mm -hmm. the Scipion family sues. Marie Scipion and her descendants, they sue related to their Native American ancestry and that Native American slavery had been outlawed, so they should be able to be freed with that. They're complicated cases. They take perseverance. They take the courage you read in Lucy Delaney's book. It's Her book is phenomenal, right. the courage that woman, right. as a young woman, had to pursue this and possible retribution if she lost. At least 300 people sued for freedom, and many won their freedom. There were more people who bought their freedom right. by working on Sundays which according to French Slave Code, there was not to be work on Sundays. So they hire themselves out on Sunday doing laundry or gardening mm-hmm. and save money and bought their freedom. And you have people like Elizabeth Keckley, who I'm familiar with, who bought her freedom. Mm-hmm. She eventually became dressmaker for Mary Todd Lincoln and also for uh, the Confederate president's yes. wife. Yeah. And I'm not even going to mention her or him. Let's leave that one out. Well, isn't that ironic? There's this richness that goes back. And so when we talk about Winnie or we talk about the Scipion family? No. There are a whole series of Winnie cases, and they are all complicated, and there is a series of people, and we condensed the okay. whole thing in gotcha. one sidebar with all these different cases mentioned. Because you would have another book of that. We have to mention Chris Saplack and Dr. Bob Moore did Dr. Moore was from the Gateway Arch and mm-hmm. Chris Appalack we have lost. They did tremendous research into people who had received their freedom during that era and they found over a thousand and it appears that most of them had bought their freedom. Wow. We did a show on the freedom suits. And, yes. and the memorial that was put up by Preston Jackson. And so we're familiar with that, but this really, it's opening some doors for me now to do my own like little personal investigation and things like that. I, I want to move to, I mentioned uh, Charles Henry Turner at the front end of the show, and the, the schools that were developed, and Turner School, 
mm-hmm. comes from Turnscope Vashon. Right. Yes. Uh, there, there are some significant names that are mentioned. And talk to us a little bit, Calvin, about some of the educational kinds of the importance of education back then and the what they were called at the colored schools back then. And this kind of even goes back to um, Meacham, where he had a school in the middle of the river because it was against the law to help African-American kids get an education. Yeah, Missouri had a law where it was illegal. Was that, was that right with Meacham? It's, it, he had a school. He had a school. <laughs> he had a school where secretly they right. taught people of African heritage enslaved and free to read and write yep. on a barge in the middle but of the Mississippi. But it, it was in the, his church. Oh, it wasn't in, in the church. church. In basement churches, yeah. It wasn't in the Mississippi. They had them in basements of people's homes, and they did them in the uh, churches. Okay. Because they, they would go to jail if they got right. caught teaching them how to read and write. And when they, so when they abolished that law, the black kids had white teachers who didn't want to teach them. This. The same with Board of Education had to threaten them to go in the classroom to teach the children. Hmm. So the parents started protesting to get uh, black teachers. And so that's when the Vashon family moved, moved here in about 1880, and they were some of the first uh, black educators here in St. Louis Public Schools. And so that's, and they, 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 at that time the school had numbers. And Vashon, it was color school number 10, which later became Vashon Elementary. Mm-hmm. And so they had numbers, and uh, they, but the, they didn't want to teach them. But as a result, as they, the black teachers started coming to St. Louis, like Charles Henry Turner, for instance, he was a scholar in Chicago, and he they would not hire him at the college level. And so he came to St. Louis and spent his whole entire career teaching here at Sumner High School. And that's why they, these kids in St. Louis Public Schools got a, a, fun, a phenomenal education, because a lot of their professors had PhDs. They were right. because they couldn't go in place else and get hired. Right. As a result, they was putting putting out a lot of smart kids yeah. back then. Yeah. Was, no doubt. Was, yeah. <laughs> How did you get familiar with uh, George uh, B. Vachon? Okay, we was cleaning out a house on West Bell, and going through some trunks in the basement, and we found we was looking at Vachon. We this stuff came out saying Vachon, so we, my wife said, well. I wonder if he got anything to do with Vashon High School. I said, I don't know. So we did some research and found out that we was cleaning out of Vashon family home. Matter of fact, the lady that the home belonged to, so Miss Gossam, taught at the elementary school that I taught at, what I, that I went to in, at Patrick Henry. She was there 40-plus years. Wow. But I didn't know her. My brother and sister knew her, hmm. but I didn't know her. But hmm. she was a Mr. Vashon granddaughter. Oh, my gosh. And so, anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so, she had gone into a retirement community, and uh, she had, uh, she never had children. And she asked her girlfriends to dispose of the contents of the house. And I guess she had probably forgotten that stuff was in the basement. Uh, we got it out, and we took it over to the Missouri History Museum. Mm-hmm. And they looked at it and told us it was the greatest find ever to have an African-American family archive intact going back 250 years. Mm-hmm. And so, my friend, Norm Paris who worked for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, said, this is news. Let me put this in the newspaper for you. And he did. And after it published, he called me and said, people all over the country want to talk to me about the Vashon artifacts. Hmm. 
It was the uh, Smithsonian Fitchburg, where the Sham family they're from. Hmm. It was uh, Howard, I think, not Howard, Oven University. Mr. Vashon. Where he graduated. Yeah, he was first African-American graduate right. as, as a lawyer, but he couldn't practice law because he was black. Right. And so anyway, they came down here to see the artifacts. And I actually, I had made a deal with the Smithsonian. And then Mount City Bar called me, a black lawyer's group. And I don't remember who, it was a lady. She said, we hear you're going to sell the Vashon artifacts. And I said, yes. And she said, we think you should keep them in St. Louis because the Vashon's had done so much here around the turn of the century. And at that time, my wife said, why don't you open a museum? And I never thought about a museum. Hmm. So one day, we was on St. Louis Avenue, and my wife looked at that bill, and she said, that'll make a nice museum. And I looked at it, my friend, he said, I know who owns it, he wants to sell it, and uh, so the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and tell folks where the museum is located. It's located at 2223 St. Louis Avenue in, in St. Louis Place neighborhood. It was a neighborhood where a lot of immigrants, Irish immigrants, lived back in the day. It was a very nice neighborhood. And I had the same numbers that Annie Malone had when she was on Market Street. Annie Malone came to St. Louis, and she was at 2223 Market Street. And so we're at 2223 St. Louis Avenue. And if you're familiar with Crown Candy, mm-hmm. you want to go just west on St. Louis Avenue right. and cross over, what is that? St. North Florissant. Yeah, North Florissant. Yeah. You're right there. And uh, you're right there. It used to be a funeral home. Museum hours are Wednesday through Saturday from 10 to 4. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to visit, Mark. I'm writing it down myself. <laughs> I, 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 I told uh, Calvin um, when I talked to him earlier that I've been to the Griot Museum, but I've not been to okay. mm-hmm. the Vachon Museum. No. It's only a block away. That's yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I think it was, might have been a funeral home at the time when I went to the grill. Okay. You've got an excuse. I have an excuse. I'm, I'm, I'm holding yeah. to that one. It, it, it hadn't been a funeral home since the 1940s. Oh, well, yeah. no. Yeah, so they, okay, yeah. I'm not that old. They didn't yeah. leave anything behind either, any bodies or anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. <Sorry>. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. The, the war efforts. And I go through this, I'm just amazed you spotlight some individuals here, the Curtis family. I don't know anything about the Curtis oh, family. Oh, my art teacher. Mrs. Curtis was a good friend of my grandmother. Uh, and she I didn't used know your grandmother. Come, how do you? Yeah, okay. My, my nana, that's what we called her, would take my sister and myself to Mrs. Curtis's art school. And it was called the People's Arts Center right. in Midtown. Oh, and Joe Jones taught there too. D- did he? Yes, he was there for a little bit. I, now, w- when you mentioned the People's us, Arts Center, it was Mrs. Wow. Curtis's art school. That's who we knew it okay. as, and it was this fabulous place in this sort of old Victorian Second Empire style house that was like tarnished gold. Was it on the north side of the street? It was on the north side of the street. I think it's I've actually no went there, there as a kid. Wow. Oh my God, wasn't it wonderful? Yes. And but I didn't develop into an artist. I, no. I, my sister did, but my family left the art school. They would not, we could not go at a certain point. I didn't know it was because the board, I knew Mrs. Curtis was upset. The board had moved the board meetings to a club the members belonged to that Mrs. Curtis had to go in the back door to it. And Mrs. Curtis got mad. She left. My parents left. That was it. No more People's Arts Center for us. But little did I know when she and my grandmother used to talk about family members and who was doing what, 
And I started looking up about Mrs. Curtis and found that her in-laws were doctors and dentists and founders of the NAACP chapter here and the Urban League chapter here and professors at Harris at Harris Stowe, at Stowe Teacher, Teachers right. College. It was just such an amazing family that everybody was excelling and lifting people up. And her art school that you vaguely remember because yes. you're younger. Yes. Here you're getting called a younger man. Keep, keep going, keep going. <laughs> but that art school was considered a real model years earlier for the integration of public schools because she, her, that art school had always been all different kinds of students together. Wow. Oh, yeah, Mrs. Curtis was wonderful. But oh, we man. found, look who you're looking at there, uh, Calvin's mom. Tell me about your mom, Calvin. Uh, my mother was from Mississippi, and she worked on uh, plantations uh, picking cotton. And she said she had picked cotton uh, hard one week because she wanted to do something. And she, uh, her girlfriend had moved to St. Louis and told her to come with her. And she said, well, I don't want to go right now. When she went to get paid... The uh, plantation owner told her that she had used up her money getting things from the store. And so she got, that was the last straw, and she took her children to her mother's, and she came to St. Louis, and that was her way of uh, getting out of the South. She had never, yeah, she got out of the South. And then we, when we got here, we first lived with a girlfriend out in Review Gardens, Mm And then when she got, she finally got her place uh, down on 10th Street. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's where we first lived when we came to St. Louis mm-hmm. in uh, during 1960. And one of the things you go into, uh, both of you go into in the book, you talk about Mill Creek Valley. You talk about, I'm buffering now. My my the brain bill? is buffering. It's my hard drive spinning, and the laser's <laughs> trying to find it's the place to go. My head is spinning, too. Um, yeah, his head spins. <laughs> yeah, it's spinning, too. <laughs> Uh, up, up the ville, uh, yeah. Where and how the population is pied or segmented. Obviously, we know we knew about that. But then Mill Creek Valley disappears, urban blight for commercial reasons. If we put a highway in, but then the projects come about. And you have Prude Igo, and you have I remember Laclede Town, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. came in right after. I it was remember, on the site of right, part of the site part of, of Mill, Mill Creek, Creek yeah. and right there near Old Vashon, which is Harrisdale. Uh, so, talk a little bit about the neighborhoods and, and the vibrancy in the neighborhood because Mill Creek was really until there was this big. Now, this is what I got from the book. Until there was this big influx from the south, kind of in the late teens, twenties, East St. Louis, maybe the riot, maybe it would have contributed to this. But all of a sudden, there was like this influx of people into the neighborhood mm. and while it had businesses and everything it seemed that it it was you know really expanding way too fast mm. for what, what was going what on. happened the Pullman porters they were getting people out of, out, out of the south on the trains they, they would hide them on luggages mm. behind, on the trains behind the luggage mm-hmm. and bring them uh out of the south they would bring them to st louis chicago ohio Detroit. They were bringing them to all these northern cities, getting them out of the south. They served as a news meter on the plantation because a lot of people could not read or write. Mm-hmm. So when the Pullman Railroad porters would go down south, uh, and they would tell the people what was going on, and they was trying to get them. Because I knew one guy, he just passed away last year. 
He said when he and his sister came, the, his mother and father sent them first. And they said they on the trains and they on the house at nighttime. Then that, they stayed there all night. It's like an underground railroad. And then that next morning they put them on the train. That's then they, all the way to St. Louis. And so that's how they was migra- that migration mm-hmm. was coming and with a lot of people coming to St. Louis mm-hmm. and these other northern cities. There's one thing that might be a little misconception, and that is starting in 1870. No, starting during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You have waves of black people coming to St. Louis, Mm -hmm. many of them refugees. Mm -hmm. And this continues every decade. Going through the census records, you see every decade more and more people coming out of the Deep South. There's a big burst after 1876 when Reconstruction ends. And oppression in specifically Mississippi is is a nightmare. And Mississippi and St. Louis, many of the stories I followed of individuals that I featured in the book, Charlie Jones, who was known as the mayor of Carondelet, he, he comes as a small child with his family from Mississippi at the beginning of the 20th century. But you see this from the, the Mississippi moved to St. Louis from 1876 on. That's interesting. And, yeah, it was not like a big wave just in the 20s. The numbers were growing, but every generation just you saw it. And what I found amazing was how the community, just as it had with Irish and Germans and all these other groups— kept absorbing people who came here who had never, many who had never lived in cities before. And that was one of the big challenges for all sorts of people arriving in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. was this adjustment from rural life to city life, wherever they were coming from. And ethnic neighborhoods just were growing all over the city. You had Bohemian Hill, you had German neighborhoods clustered around churches and Turnverines, mm-hmm. Slavic groups in South City. There were five different Polish neighborhoods, and they were all, but when you're talking about these neighborhoods overgrowing, part of it was the Great Depression Mm-hmm. A lot of this is the issue of plumbing. That's true. Okay. The full bath is not built with each unit until the 1920s. A lot of our housing was from the 19th century for all these different ethnic groups. And in the 20s, they were adding baths on the back of a multifamily to serve the whole multifamily, a laundry and bathroom combined. That's what happened in Mill Creek. That's what happened in the Polish neighborhood around St. Stanislaus, all these different groups. And then you have the Great Depression. All improvements stop for all those years. Then you have war shortages. And you find that following the war, the historic neighborhoods in St. Louis, all these different ethnic groups, including The Mill Creek neighborhood, all these different ethnic neighborhoods, are suffering from a lack of plumbing. And 
that's a challenge. That, that makes perfect sense, Mark. It makes perfect sense. Right. And r- rather than try to make the neighborhood work, mm-hmm. let's, let's just mow it down. Yeah. There was a plan to, in essence, mow down all of Soulard and all of Lafayette Square. We just didn't have the money to mow them down. Gosh. That's how they survived, and then years later, people fixed them up. Oh, my. Again, we need to look at black history in a big context of right. what's as happening. Pa- as part of history. Yes, right. as part of history rather than a separate. Now, I agree. Both Calvin, totally and, agree. Calvin and Nini are going to be out in the city. Calvin's going to be, matter of fact, tonight, if you're listening, uh-huh. it's today is January 30th. So if you're listening, if, you're, if it's post-January 30th when you're listening, it's too late. Yeah. He's going to be at Left Bank Bookstore and what, 7 p.m.? 6 6 p.m. And then on February the 13th, he's going to be at the Webster Groves Presbyterian Church at 7 p.m. That's February the 13th. And then earlier that day, he's going to be at the Missouri History Museum at 11 a.m. So that's February 13th. On February the 21st, he's going to be at the Richmond Heights Library at 6.30 p.m. And on April the 10th, he's going to be at the Maplewood Library. And so you can call those places and get some additional information. Nini's going to be at the Campbell House Museum, and that's February the 11th at 2 p.m. And then she's going to be at the uh, Ulysses S. Grant, Hiram Ulysses S. Grant Mm -hmm. Historic Site. And that's going to be February 17th at 10 a.m. And then the Carondelet Branch of the St. Louis Public Library on March the 2nd, and that's at 11 a.m. So, Calvin, when you go to one of these events, what do you, I guess you sign books, you talk I about? Guess some, some of the places, they, they, uh, Left Bank will buy their books, Missouri History Museum will buy their books, and I just sign if they, people buy them as they uh, mm. get them. Do you ever lecture or anything? Yeah, yeah. I talk about the museum, mm-hmm. and I talk about the book. Yes, uh, okay. I do. Okay. Good. And then uh, we get a, a people opportunity to ask questions, Good. and then they have opportunity to buy books. Also, I want to say the book is being sold in all the snook stores as well. Oh, I nice. did see it there yesterday. Right. I was there. Yes. Okay. Oh, neat. I neat. did see it there. Okay. That was at the Richmond Heights store where I saw it. Huh. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to put you both on the spot, and you have 45 seconds to respond to this. <laughs> Good Lord. Because we're uh, short on time. Why do people need to read this book? Oh, man. It's a great book. Because no one has covered African-American history in St. Louis to this extent. It's the first book that has been out with this type of information. So everybody who needs to know something about African-American history needs to uh, get a copy of this book and read it. Mm-hmm. Nini. Because it's 250 years of history that is a part of St. Louis history. And it's in the context of St. Louis and specifically what was going on in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And Mark, I would add those are some genic answers. Is that the word for what the day? What does that mean? We have a word for the day. Honest, fair, and straightforward. Genic? Those were genic. Genic. J-A-N-O-C-K. J-A-N-O-C-K. We try to do words that people are not familiar with. <laughs> you got had me on you, that one, didn't you? You got us. Yeah. Genic. <laughs> All of us. The Janic approach of the coach brought out the best in her players, instilling a sense of fairness and camaraderie. Okay, we got to re- try to remember to use that word today. To That's the whole point, is yeah. using that word. The Janic businessman refused to engage in deceptive practices, <laughs> maintaining a reputation for honesty and integrity. 
My and wife I, will slap me. I would say, median <laughs> Calvin gave a Janic answer to Arnold's question about oh. why people should read this book. Wow. And we're talking about <laughs> Nene Harris and Calvin Riley and their book, Black St. Louis, available at a lot of bookstores, and, and it's from readypress.com. Yeah. I appreciate both of you coming in talking about this. Thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah. And Thank you need you. to go to the George Vachon uh, Museum up on St. Louis Avenue. 2223 yeah. St. Louis yeah. Avenue. Yes. Wednesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4. 10 to 4. Yeah. 10 to 4. Okay. I'm going. We need to talk about that on another show. Okay. Yeah. We could do a whole Yeah. Yeah, we could do a whole show on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got to do a show from there. Ooh. You know, Ooh. We could yeah. do that. Ooh, we could yeah. bring the remote equipment and yeah, go up there and do a cool. show from there. And we walk around. You can talk about some of the artifacts. Right. And I think the that'd be fantastic. Oh, yeah. That'd really than, stimulate people to get them up there. Be more than that would be hour great. Long. Yeah. yeah. That'd be cool. That, I had no idea that was there. Right. I think it's fantastic. This is stuff we need to know. It, it Because it's history. Because right. it's St. Louis. It's St. Louis history. Mm-hmm. Today is, so you all know, today is, uh, where is it? Backwards Day. So we're supposed to do things backwards. I've seen it where it, at high school where the kids wear the clothes backwards. So my name yeah. backwards is not Scanal Cram. Okay. He always does this. <laughs> oh. He always does. And I've been working on Arnold's name backwards, yeah. and yeah. I'm not sure if I can. I've got it. I, I did it one time, but Del, I forgot it. Delaner, Delanra. I'm sorry, Delanra. Delanra, right? It almost sounds like a girl's name. Delanra, Delanra, Recurtis. Delandra Recurtis. That's you backwards. Delandra Recurtis. So there you are, have it backwards. Okay. Delandra Recurtis. I know it. Delandra Recurtis. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to remember Not that. Not did, did you know I have a pet termite? No. <laughs> I named him Clint. Clint eats wood. <laughs> oh, God. That's bad. It is bad. It's terrible. Don't, it is don't, terrible. Don't That's encourage why I love him it. ever. Yeah, don't ever. Mm-hmm. Don't, yeah. So a, a woman was accused of attacking her husband with several of his guitars. The judge asked, first offender? She replied, no, first a Gibson, second offender. Oh, oh I love it. Man. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. We're running out of time, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all for this hour. Thanks for listening, folks. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to additional shows at stlintune.com, stlintune.com. Consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback helps us reach more listeners and continue to grow. Thanks to Bob Berthasel for our theme music and co-host Mark Langston. And we thank you for being a part of our community of curious minds. St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network. Remember to keep seeking, keep learning, walk worthy, and let your light shine. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.